Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Irish Alzheimer's in the old joke is ascribed to people who can't remember anything but their grudges. It's a sort of kernel of Lewis Hyde's new and ecstatic survey of our ancient fascination with memory and forgetting. The new book from a prized writer is a primer for forgetting, getting past the past. Memory and forgetting are a fluid pair, it turns out. Twin capacities, not opposites, and usually not a contradiction. The issue between the two is when to let go. Some parts of our past, individual and communal, need to be remembered so they can be forgotten. Others need to be forgotten so that they can reappear later, unbidden, whole, and possibly healed. This bears on the scars of childhood trauma, also on what to do with all those statues of Confederate generals standing tall across the American South. Lewis Hyde composed this book from years of notes as a thought experiment. He wanted to nominate places where forgetting is better than remembering. One place I began was reading about the old oral cultures where the memory of the past lives in living people's minds, not in books. And one thing they say about the oral cultures is that they are constantly renewing themselves by just disposing of what happened in the past that no longer has any present usefulness. So I thought that was an interesting idea. And I began to collect places where disposing of the past, just letting it drop away, turns out to be fundamental to some kind of rebirth. You know, all over the world, there's the myth that to be born as a human being is to forget what the soul knew before it was born. So this is in Plato, it's in China, you find it in the Trobrian Islands, that the unborn soul knows many, many things. And when you are born, you forget everything. So this seems like a great loss. But you could flip it over and say, in fact, it seems to say that forgetfulness is the prerequisition of birth. And to be reborn, to come to life again, to emerge into the world freshly, requires forgetting. I was amazed how old this thing is. Pre-Socratic philosophies, and as you say, China, rivers of forgetfulness pop up all over the place. But I want to cut to the chase in our culture today. And it's a hard, urgent assignment in America. This brutal color line that has been denied always, but persists through slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, segregation, mass incarceration today. You have a wonderful line in the book, America is a nation created by organized forgetting, particularly on the race line. How do we remember it carefully enough so that we might someday forget it? Well, this is the big question. I was a civil rights worker in Mississippi in the summer of 1964. This is the summer when famously Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, three other civil rights workers, were murdered. But it turns out there were other murders that summer. And I went back and got involved in researching the murders of two young black men, Charles D. and Henry Moore, happened in May of 1964. And the burden of it is that the older brother of one of these murdered kids did a lot of work to try to get the case reopened, get Mm. the case settled, and then work with one of the Klansmen who had been involved in the murder around questions about forgiveness. 
Moore had been in the army when his brother was killed, went off to Vietnam, served in the Gulf War, retired as a retired military man, but then finally went back to Mississippi in the late 1990s, early aughts, and uh, began to reopen this case. As I remember, he was driven by horrible nightmares. Something was coming back and back and back to remind him. So, you know, I treat this as a case of traumatic memory. And in a way, it's one of the easy places where you can think that forgetting might be useful, that to be traumatized and then to have a memory that you cannot get rid of, that in fact begins to control your life, the unforgettable thing. How do you work with this? How do you begin not to get to the place where you don't even know it happened, but where the memory of it is insignificant? The memory of it does not control your thinking and your Mm -hmm. behavior anymore. And Thomas Moore was traumatized by his brother's death. And he had nightmares in which his brother would come to him and ask why he didn't help Mm. and what could he do. And, And Thomas Moore, as many people do who've been wounded in this way, began by seeking revenge. His fantasy was that he would arm himself, he'd been trained in the army as a, as a sniper, and go back to Meadville, Mississippi, and shoot people, or, mm. or poison the water supply. And finally, he's a believing Christian, and finally, through his faith and through his family, he didn't do that. And when a Canadian filmmaker approached him to try to make a movie about this, they went back to Mississippi, and they found two of the men who'd been involved in the murders. They gave one of them immunity, And they convicted the other one and put him in jail. He died in jail. And one of the remarkable things is at the trial, the man who'd been given immunity stood up and asked the families if they Mm. could forgive him. And Thomas Moore decided he would try to do that. One thing to say about this, though, is it's individual forgiveness. There's a larger question about collective action and collective memory and collective forgiveness. So these kind of one-off Wonderful stories about reconciliation don't necessarily speak to the larger problem of how this country deals with its legacy of of apartheid. Just this weekend, Colson Whitehead has a new novel out, extensively reviewed, about a sort of reform school for kids in the panhandle of Florida, I'm pretty sure. And archaeologists are digging up scores 80 maybe bodies of kids, black kids, who who were slaughtered in this place. And the suggestion surely is that this has happened many, many more times than we want to even imagine. But again, the denial, the surprise, this is relatively recent, modern times, our lifetimes. Sketch out the assignment that's got to be undertaken to know something <laughs> in detail and face it. before it can possibly fade. So one interesting fact about how we imagine forgetting, in in the Greek language, to forget is lethe. So we know there's the river lethe, it's in our word lethal. But the word lethe goes back to a root that means to be hidden or to hide away. And so something that's been forgotten is imagined to be hidden in the mind. You can't find it when you search your mind for it. And I end up saying, in fact, we could also imagine this as being buried. And that yes, there t- yes, yes. And there are two kinds of burial. One is burial where you have really worked through, where you have proper burial, where you have funeral rites, and where morning, you go yeah. through the, the process of knowing what happened and so forth. The other is burial where you, where you simply can't stand to look at the thing and pretend it didn't happen. So the Colson Whitehead book speaks about the second kind of burial in which the killing of black folk is simply hidden away and not dealt with. 
So then your larger question is, how do you, what does proper burial mean? How do you do the work? That too, of course, goes back to classical Greek drama. Yeah, well, it's in Antigone and other stories, uh, the puzzle of how you do proper burial. I have a sort of list of what one needs to have done in a political situation to begin to put the past behind you. And um, if I can just sketch it quickly, it, it begins with truth. You need to know what happened. That's a large step. Then there should be justice. If there were crimes committed, people need to be punished or held to count. Uh, it would be good if you had reparations. If people have been, in fact, wounded and deprived of the fullness of their lives, the perpetrator should uh, respond to that appropriately. And ideally what follows is some kind of apology and forgiveness, mm. though these are harder you know, often, actually, to say quickly, one thing that's interesting about what they did in South Africa is people were given amnesty for their political crimes, and amnesty is judicial forgetting. The law agrees to not remember your crime. People were given amnesty if they told the truth about what happened, and there were several other requirements. That what happened had to be a political crime and so forth, but there was no requirement for apology or forgiveness. If you had all those things then you could bury the past. And maybe you put up a grave marker. And one of the wonderful things about a grave marker is that you can go visit it, but you do not have to. So it's unlike a traumatic memory, which controls you. A grave is something you can visit, but you do not have to. There are places where it's worked, but immediately come to mind things where it hasn't been even attempted. The Armenians and the Turks, for example. The Turks still deny that they killed a vast swath of more than many more than a million Armenians in 1915. But then there's a whole history that I should know better of Indian massacres by U.S. cavalry in the middle of the 19th century. You write about Little Crow, who was killed and scalped by a Minnesota farmer in 1862. Yes, yeah, so this is the 1860s in Minnesota. Civil War time. He was a Dakota Sioux. He was a leader of what was called the Sioux Rebellion. This is 1862. And the Sioux had entered into a, a treaty with the United States government in which they would, the Sioux would settle along the Minnesota River. They would be given land and annuities and certain goods. And then what happened was the U.S. government reneged on this treaty. So the Sioux were mad, and they rebelled. The rebellion was put down. Many were killed. Little Crow escaped. But then there was a bounty on his head, and uh, there was a bounty on, on the head of any Sioux to be captured and killed. There was a double bounty on Little Crow's body, and he was shot while foraging for berries in Hutchinson, Minnesota, by a farmer. And they took him into town, the body, and they dragged it through the streets with dogs picking at his head, and they scalped him. And when I was in college in Minnesota in the 1960s, the scalp of Little Crow was owned by the Minnesota Historical Society. And... I knew this because I was friends with the poet Robert Bly, and this was the time of the Vietnam War now. This is 1960s. And Robert Bly's thought was that, in fact, the Vietnam War mm. had one of its almost hidden motivations, a kind of ancient American racism, that it was easier for us to kill people of color in a foreign land because we had been killing people of color in our own land 100 years ago. And, and so it, it's almost as if cases like this require the proper burial of the remains of the Indians who were killed in the Indian Wars in the 19th century. 
You know, one of I have the aphorisms in this book, and one of them is to live steeped in history, but not in the past. That's one and, of the great ones. And to begin to be steeped in history is to really know these stories and to know what our past contains. And in this case, I would say that the proper burial of Little Crow's scalp would be an act of foreign policy, in that it would lay to rest a kind of local impulse that has been exported into our foreign wars. Coming up, Lewis Hyde has museums of forgetfulness in his head. He would set one of them on the Natchez Bluff in Mississippi, an interracial recovery space, down a circular staircase under the river and out to the far shore and a free run to the west. This is Open Source. Lewis Hyde made his writing reputation as a philosophical trickster, an artistic anthropologist with The Gift, a book about making art in a commercial culture. He notes a native jumpiness in the vast archive of his mind and his reading. You wonder who but Lewis Hyde could have drawn so deep on Zen masters, Greek tragedy, Emily Dickinson, his own shaping time in the civil rights movement, to round out his fresh point about memory that the goal for all of us should be to live in history, but not in the past. Some people manage it, he said, some don't. I think this is an eternal battle in any human community, is to lay our grievances to rest, but they keep coming up again. There's a wonderful line from a French scholar in the 19th century. He's trying to think what nations are. And he says, well, a nation is a place where people have many, many things in common, but they've also forgotten many things. And he says the French, for example, have forgotten the wars in the south of France from the Middle Ages and the wars later in the Hundred Years' War in France. These are wars of religion in which Catholics and Protestants murdered each other. And what Renan is saying is that to be French in the 19th century is to have put this behind you. To not it's, Again, it's not that you don't know it happened or couldn't figure out that it happened, but it's not motivating. And so the French, he claims, have forgotten these wars, and that's one thing that makes France, France. And now if we turn to the United States, I think there are things we have forgotten from our history that Mm. are usefully forgotten. For example, (laughs) the Puritans used to hang Quakers on the Boston Common. This is not something we think about much (laughs) today. (laughs) Or there was the War of 1812, I challenge people in the audience to remember why we fought the War of 1812. It produced this bar-spangled banner, which we sing regularly, but we have forgotten why we fought that war. Now, the opposite of this is the constant remembering of our conflicts. And, um, you know, when I was writing this book, I, I was sort of haunted by a wonderful line from Milan Kundera, the Czech novelist, who is complaining about what he calls the organized forgetting that the communist nations used to impose on their populations, mm. where, where what happened in the past didn't fit their ideology. And he says, rightly, that the struggle against power is the struggle against forgetting. So I think that's true in many situations. But as my thought experiment was to try to figure out where forgetfulness is useful, I had to flip this over. And what I end up doing is talking about the degree to which politicians often resurrect the memory of racial and religious differences Mm. and use them as the tool of political agency. And a simple example of this, Ronald Reagan kicked off his earliest presidential campaign by going to Philadelphia, Mississippi, the same place where Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney were killed in 1964, 
and declaring that he believed in states' rights. Now, this is the beginning of what's called the Southern Strategy, in which uh, the Republican Party came to believe that they could make the Southern states swing from Democratic to Republican by pressing on the racial issue, and they were right. But again, this is the resurrection calling to mind the memory of racial difference. Mm -hmm. So I end up saying the struggle against power is the struggle to forget our differences. And you speak of instances where the memories of difference are cultivated and stirred up and heated. Yeah. Even in our own country this summer, it's always a warning. Yeah, often the political tool is to, is to pick what's called a, a, a chosen trauma, something that happened in the past that you can mm. rally people around. In this country, you know, the fights we have over Confederate monuments and the fights we have over, over the uh, Confederate battle flag These are symbols which resurrect the trauma of the Civil War. Mm. And in in terms of how we remember the past, the Civil War is not over. You have a wonderful remedy for that. Maybe it's not yours originally. What to do with the Confederate generals in so many Dixie capitals and cities and towns? Remind us. Well, again, you don't want to simply erase this past. You want the past to be available to, to be known. You know, one thing that's of interest is I think a successful memorial to something that happened in the past is one that can be ignored. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you this. I drive around Boston on Memorial Drive, and I go by Soldier's Field Road. We don't think much about why those are named that. They're named that because of the Civil War. And the people who came back from the Civil War Mm. in the late 19th century wanted to remember. But these memories have faded. They're not marked for us. We don't think every time we drive on Memorial Drive what it's about. I couldn't have told you who the soldiers were on Soldiers Field Road. You could You could I couldn't, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have said World War I, but wrong. Wrong again, Leiden. But to to take the other side of this, of course, in the South, they they care about these monuments because this is still an open wound. And uh, again, I don't think we should get rid of these monuments, but if we, could, if we could move them to a place where they're not celebrated, where they become really historical, that would be a first move. There's a group called the Equal Justice Initiative, which has documented lynchings in the South. I was going to say, that Brian Stevenson. Yeah. And, right. 4,000 lynchings. Exactly. Well, what he's done is he's built a memorial pavilion that has hanging columns, one for each county in which African-Americans were lynched, and the names are inscribed on these columns. But there's a pair of columns for each county. And the challenge is the counties involved could take their column back to the county and mm. erect it and have it be part of the public memory of what happened. Uh, I wrote to them and asked, has anybody taken a column yet? And uh, by the time when I wrote, nobody had. So these are ongoing culture wars, how to tell the story of the past you know, my, my little list of, of how you put the past behind you begins with truth. And in many political situations, the truth is, is going to be contested for a long time. In Berlin, I've seen, I'm sure you have, these very discreet bronze squares in the sidewalks where yeah. it is known that one Jewish woman, man, child was taken on the train to Auschwitz. They're everywhere. You don't have to stop at everyone, but the cumulative impression is incredibly powerful. But there's some difference between uh, the memory of the 
Second World War in Germany and the memory of the Civil War in the United States. And maybe that Germany was so thoroughly defeated that a new chapter could be more easily opened. In the United States, in 1877, there was a contested presidential election, and to settle the contest, it was agreed that Reconstruction would end, that the attempt to fully enfranchise African Americans in the South would be abandoned, and that question of voting rights and so forth would be turned over to the states. Mm. So this is only, what, 12 years after the Civil War ends, and states' rights is resurrected as the ground way of operating in the United States. And it's the beginning of Jim Crow, and then this goes on for 100 more years. Mm. Lewis Hyde, I got to just say, this is a marvelous book, and we've all read it over, backward, forward. It's different. It's one page per thought in a lot of it. Some of the thoughts are only one sentence, and the page is mostly blank. But one has the feeling of a lifetime of accumulation of interesting pieces on this amazingly persistent thread, memory forgetting. What's it like <laughs> to have these, this little dyad in your head? So the way I began this book was just to collect things in notebooks. These used to be called commonplace books. You would just write down things right. you found related to some topic you had. So the book is episodic. It does have, there's a few entries that are just a sentence long. Most are a page or two at most. And then there came a moment when I had to, okay, I have to figure out if there's some shape here. So I literally made little pieces of paper for every entry and spread them out on a huge table. And, and I organized them in four categories. So the first part of the book is about myth. And there are lots of mythic stories about uh, memory and forgetting. The second is about the individual self-psychology. The third is about politics, nations. And the final one is about spiritual life and artistic practice. And it was fun to write in that I didn't ever feel haunted by the sense that I had to make, you know, a master argument. I was just collecting things that intrigued me and I thought would intrigue <laughs> other people. There's a wonderful poem of Emily Dickinson. She says, uh, she's writing to somebody. She says, to be forgot by thee surpasses memory of other minds. The heart cannot forget unless it contemplate what it declines. I was regarded then, raised from oblivion, a single time, to be remembered. What worthy to be forgot is my renown. Mm. But what I love of this is when she says, the heart cannot forget unless it contemplate what it declines. So one key to my book is a, is a Buddhist aphorism that in meditation practice, what you do is you study the self to forget the self. Mm. And so there's a sequence here. It's not about repression or amnesia or dissociation. It's about actually doing some kind of work that takes you through something such that it can be dropped. The heart cannot forget unless it contemplates what it declines. So in the Buddhist practice, you kind of watch your own habits of mind mm. and become familiar with them such that you can begin to see the world which is otherwise obscured by your habits of mind. So that to finish the quote, this comes from Dogen Zenji, a, a Buddhist master. He says, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to see the world in its complete fullness. Mm. You can forget baseball statistics that you once knew automatically 
once you know exactly where you can look them up. Right. I'm thinking also, Ed Wilson, the ant biologist, had a friend who was, I think, the provost at Stanford, but he got to a ripe old age, and he was an ichthyologist, a fish scientist, as Wilson was an ant scientist, and he, he got to the point where he said he didn't try to learn students' names anymore because for every new student he put in the file, <laughs> he had to drop a fish, and the fish were more valuable to him. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's it's almost a computer analogy, imagining the mind having a limited <laughs> cache of memory. But every, every, every generation has its own metaphors for how to remember and forget. You know, the ancient ones have to do with waters of forgetfulness. The modern ones have to do with computer chips. You write, every act of memory is an act of forgetting, and maybe vice versa. Well, you know, I'm thinking there of ancient work by Hesiod, uh, in Hesiod's work, we find the image of Mnemosyne, the mother of the muses. And she is imagined always as memory. But in fact, uh, her powers, says Hesiod, allow you to forget the anxieties and burdens of the present day and remember the golden age. So she's a double goddess. She's a goddess who helps you remember and forget. There's a wonderful thing in Vladimir Nabokov. He says that the mother of the muses, Namazni, had the, had the wit to store up certain things from the past so that you can use them in your art mm. and find the harmonies from the past. But if you think about that, he's also saying that this wit of selecting stuff from the past involves also discarding stuff from the past. So again, imagination itself has this double feature. The Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges says, memory and forgetting, we call that imagination. It's a beautiful line. Borges is full of good stuff. He was asked if he would forgive the Peronistas. Yes. It used to irritate me because I didn't think they were necessarily connected, forgetting and forgiving. And Borges has a wonderful explanation of that. He says about this fact that in the time when Juan Perón came to power in Argentina, uh, they insulted Borges. He had been working in the libraries, and they demoted him and made him an inspector of uh, poultry in the public <laughs> markets. So the interviewer asks him, well, Jorge Luis Borges, have you forgiven the Peronistas? And he says, nah, forgiven? No, nah, I've forgotten them. He says, you know, if you forgive somebody, they're still part of your system. But forget them is to just get them out of your system. He says, vengeance and forgiveness are made of the same substance, oblivion. <laughs> You're collecting notes throughout this book for a museum of forgetting. An American apartheid memorial is just part of it on the Natchez High Bluff. What's it going to be? My memorial for yeah. apartheid? <laughs> well, your museum of forgetting, which has many branches. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Frankly, what happened was I was jealous of all my friends who are art historians and, and theorists because when they give a lecture, they can show slides. And so they get to darken the room and have a magic picture show and kind of mesmerize the audience. So I wanted to do that too. So I decided to invent a museum of forgetting and find artists who have an interest in forgetfulness. For example, Marcel Duchamp, he writes about a friend of his, uh, Picabia, who uh, he says, Picabia had the wonderful gift of forgetting his last painting, and so he could do a new painting that was a completely original. So I put Picabia <laughs> in my Museum of Forgetting, and Duchamp mm. is in there too. 
you know, it's, it's a theme in artistic practice. Again, it goes back to getting rid of your habits of mind. There's a wonderful quote from Elizabeth Bishop. She's reading uh, about Charles Darwin, and she says what's amazing about Darwin is that you see him studying all this stuff in minute detail, but then there's a kind of dreamy phase in which uh, he drifts off and almost forgets what he's doing. Mm. And she says, this is what you need for art, a completely useless concentration, a kind of self-forgetfulness. So it's not hard, it turns out, to find artists who have an interest in forgetting and put them in my museum. Hmm. Describe the museum on the bluff at Natchez. So Natchez is a remarkable city. I'd never been there. And it's on a high bluff over the Mississippi River. It's a beautiful town. I mean, if it were in France, it would be a destination for everybody. Mm. Why it's not... I mean, people go there mostly to see these pre-war uh, antebellum mansions, but somehow that doesn't appeal to many Americans. But it, so in my own thinking about how to memorialize the century of American apartheid, I began to imagine a museum that would be placed on that bluff, but it would have like a spiral staircase that went down, down, down to the Mississippi River. Now, one of the facts about the murders of Dee and Moore in 1964 is that they were drowned in the Mississippi, these two boys. They were drowned alive in the Mississippi. And only months later were their bodies found. And the skull of one of them was never found. So there's a skull of a murdered black man someplace in the Mississippi River. And I don't think the Mississippi River has only one such skull in it. Mm. So in my imaginary museum on the memory of American apartheid, you go down in this spiral staircase to a pool and around the pool on shelves are skull cups. Mm. These, this is an ancient phenomenon. People used to drink from the skull of the dead. Uh, Lord Byron had a skull cup, <laughs> uh, some, uh, a dead monk he'd found on his property in England. Anyway, you drink from this and you're told one of the stories, one of the 4,000 stories that uh, Ryan Stevenson has found about lynchings in America. And you call to mind the name of this person. I also imagined, you know, I'm struck when I go to Europe, the floors of European churches and cathedrals, floored with marble. It used to be engraved with things. 400 years of walking on those stones, the names get erased. Mm. So I'm imagining that the names of all these dead would be on the walls. And as you walk down, you would rub your hands against them. Mm. And it would take 400 years to erase them, which is more or less the time of the beginning of American slavery to the Civil War, about 400 years. Mm. So this is not, it should be forgotten, but it's going to take a while. And after you've drunk from this skull cup containing the water from the Mississippi, the water that contains the memory of the dead, then there's a tunnel under the river, and you go out and head west, as Americans have always done. Mm. The Lewis Hyde. <laughs> the peace of Lewis Hyde. I think Brian Stevenson's memorial is better than mine, but I, I, <laughs> I don't think anybody's going it's, to... It's a memorial of the imagination. Coming up, in these United States of Amnesia, we've had champion forgetters like Emerson and some strong rememberers too, like Frederick Douglass. This is Open Source.
Lewis Hyde reminds you that to remember or to forget is often not a choice. In Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, one boy's childhood in France reenacts itself in depth and detail, a literary miracle. In our day, when people live longer and longer, we all see memory slipping away. My mother had old-age yeah. dementia. We never knew quite what, but Alzheimer's or strokes, something. And as with any family that suffers this, it was a great sorrow to my father and to her children. And we lived with it for, I don't know, five or ten years. And it's, in a way, it's the dark thread in the book that it keeps coming up, this fact of my mother's dementia. You know, my book tries to think where forgetfulness is useful, but I am not in favor of dementia. At the same time, this is, you know, as medicine has got us living longer and longer, we find out what fails next after you've cured, you know, six kinds of cancer. It turns out the brain is hard to maintain. So we are a generation which is living with memory loss. It's no more horrible than death. It's something we live with, Mm. and we can think about it in many different ways. So it occurred to me at one point, yeah, maybe what I was doing in writing this was preparing for the could happen to me. Mm. It's part of what I loved about this book, because I, I saw all of that on my own mother's face at the end of her life, well into her 90s. She had never stopped adoring my father, who had died 30 years earlier. But it came to the point where she would hardly know who I was until I gave her my birth date, and I'd say, what happened on that day? And she said, you were born. <laughs> and, and then she paused and said, there must have been a man in this. <laughs> and I said, yeah, there sure was. And she said, was he a good sort? And I said, mom, he was the best. And this incredibly beatific happiness came over her face. And I thought ever since, it's almost the definition of heaven, to have forgotten everything, but to have held on to the feeling of it. Yeah. I mean, what's touching in that is it turns out these long-term memories are laid down in some different fashion. What we lose is the ability to lay down short-term memory. And often what one does with somebody who's in this predicament is to remember the deep past, because a lot of it is still there and will make the person happy. Hmm. You allude to the point that Proust showed us exactly how the recovery of memory is not voluntary exactly. You don't research it and stumble on you know, an instance. It blossoms suddenly. In Proust, there are two kinds of memory. So he's most interested in what you're describing here, which is called involuntary memory. And the other kind, where you can, in fact, remember the past and dig up some fact, is sort of governed by reason or something like this. One thing that's interesting in Proust, in the first volume of this big, fat, six-volume novel he wrote, it begins with his, in a sense, traumatized memory from childhood of times when his mother didn't come up and kiss him goodnight. So it's a childhood sadness, something like this. He goes on for pages and pages. 30 pages waiting for a good night kiss. And then what happens is drinking tea with his mom years later, he remembers that he used to drink tea and eat biscuits called Madeleine with his Aunt Leone. And he'd forgotten this, but the point is it's it's an incredibly trivial memory. It's insignificant. And it comes back to him completely formed and juxtaposed with the present moment when he's doing exactly the same thing. And in Proust, all the memories which are beatific for him, which Mm. give him a sense that life is worth living, that maybe he's an eternal being, they all are trivial memories. 
And for Proust, his idea is that the triviality is part of it. They have been protected from the gears of the mind chewing over them by being so trivial that the mind has its own habits of thought and works over most memories, and these have eluded it. So there's like a guardian forgetfulness which protects the trivial memory. And when it comes back, it seems as if time collapses, that the present moment and the past are exactly the same, which means there is no time. And for Proust, that feeling is the feeling he treasures. 3,000 pages of Proust, beautifully summarized by Lewis Hyde. (laughs) There's a list I have only half made, but of the great forgetters and the great rememberers. Emerson, turns out, was a forgetter, and it makes total sense in his work. When you get into a bind, draw a new circle, start again. Every day, a new, the position of a man in transition is like the breath of morning, keep going. Frederick Douglass, his contemporary, who he would have supported as an abolitionist, just the opposite. No, it's in the memory of heroism that new heroism is born, in a way. It's a wonderful contrast, Douglas and Emerson. To juxtapose Emerson to something I said earlier about forgetting is a prerequisite of birth. And for Emerson and his pals, what was going on was they were trying to create a new American literature, and they needed to forget Europe. And he says, why carry the corpse of your memory about? Why not live in the new day? So his project is to be reborn as an American author and forget the European models. So that's fine. Frederick Douglass went through the Civil War. And after the war, when the lost cause narrative, which claimed that the war was about states' rights, not about slavery, when that begins to be predominant, Douglass complains. He says, no, that's not the case. We must remember. And so you're right. He's a great rememberer because the story is still contested. It has to be argued. And he puts down a marker and says, we must remember this. Buddhism at large comes into the forgetting column. John Farrell of the Red Sox said (laughs) the secret of their team in 2003, it was a good one, was that they knew how to forget. Yeah, Uh, you forget the last game. You forget the last pitch. You start (laughs) freshly every second. And yet it's a thing I've observed myself. Everybody knows. Baseball players never forget pitches, days, weather, who was on base. (laughs) Borges obviously is a forgetter. Nietzsche was a forgetter, forgetting is part of the hero's journey. Who are the other great rememberers? I mean, again, I think the great rememberers are political figures, and they tend to appear when the story is being contested. After Franco died in Spain, yes, the Spanish passed an amnesty law, not a very good one, it just forgave everybody, but the Spaniards went through what they called an informal pact of oblivion, mm-hmm. el pacto del olvido. This, I think, is absolutely typical of post-war or post-Civil War countries, that the recent thing is so horrible and so hard to separate the good from the bad that you just forget about it. If you didn't, you would just start the war again. And the problem is that that can only last so long. And what happens in Spain is 20 or 30 years later, the next generation says, well, wait a minute, we must remember. And so the great rememberers in Spain appear 20 years after Franco dies. And they pass laws of historical memory, and they begin to exhume the bodies of people who were killed in the Civil War and never honored. So they re-engage the argument over how to remember the past. Sum it up in the sense of trying to reconcile these two views. You quote an Irish woman, probably of the IRA persuasion, but weary of it, saying, we should erect a statue to amnesia, 
and forget where we put it. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful line. But on the other side, Cheyenne people in your book are crying for help to this day, looking for a proper memorial at the killing field known as Sand Creek, Colorado. One of their leaders hears voices of the dead today and says, Sand Creek is not over. Yeah. The mythological material, spiritual material, artistic material, personal psychology, all of that works better uh, when trying to think how forgetfulness is useful. Because individuals like Emerson or like this man who forgives the folks who murdered his brother, individuals can end up with a clear story that they then can work with and begin to put behind them. Similarly, artists can begin to have a practice Mm. of self-forgetfulness, ways to get out of their own heads and see the world freshly. When you get into the political sphere, it doesn't work so well. In several cases, the experiment fails. I've been trying to think of places where forgetfulness is useful. If you think about the Civil War, it's not over. If you think about the way Native Americans were treated in the Indian Wars, this needs to be remembered. The cry for reparations is alive in the land again, and it's on your list. The question of reparations for for slavery is currently unsolvable, but really needs to be discussed. But there is a case, actually, of an articulated set of reparations. And that comes at the end of this story about the Sand Creek Massacre. So Cheyenne and Arapaho people were ruthlessly murdered by Shivington's Calvary in Colorado, the Sand Creek Massacre. And when the government tried to really figure out what had happened— They both apologized formally, and in a treaty, 1865, Treaty of the Little Arkansas, articulated suitable reparations for injuries done, these being mostly land grants, 320 acres to Black Kettle, one of the wounded, for example, and payment in United States securities, animals, goods, provisions, and other such useful articles. In other words, there was a list made, 1865, Mm. of reparations for a crime against the Cheyenne and Arapaho peoples. This was never paid. The United States reneged on this treaty. So reparations are important, but after you've said what they are, you need to follow through. And we haven't mentioned the genocide of Jews in Nazi Germany. Absolutely needs to be remembered. Obviously, but I mean, how are we doing? Germany's doing better than a lot of guilty nations, including us. You know, when talking about the Holocaust, the category of never forget comes up. So this kind of haunts me because, of course, I think there are places where maybe never forget exaggerates it, but we really cannot forget. At the same time, I end up quoting several Holocaust survivors who begin to interrogate the limits of that command. A woman named Ruth Kluger, she says, you know, the problem here is that we think that remembering the Holocaust will prepare us for something that's going to happen in the future. But in fact, what happens is always new. We're not going to recognize it. If our model is the past, Evil is always going to be with us, but it's going to appear in new guises. Mm. And if we use the past evil as our guide, it may in fact just inhibit our ability to see what's going on. So she's a skeptic about Holocaust museums. She says they inhibit the critical faculty. You know, they give you one story. Mm. And l- let me jump back to individuals. There, the command to never forget is more clearly a potential curse. I tell a story about Ralph Waldo Emerson. When he was a young man, he married and his wife died when he was young. And in Robert Richardson's book about Emerson, he tells a story of Emerson going to the grave of his wife. Yes. And he writes a little poem. He says, teach me 
that I am by the dead forgot, and she is by herself forgot. And there's a sense that the endless remembering of the dead is going to inhibit your new life. And this is the moment when Emerson leaves America and goes to Europe for the first time. And in that case, never forget would be a deadly curse. He needs to put that part of his life behind him. Do we have it right that for people and nations, the trick is remembering stuff so scrupulously that you can forget about it and letting other stuff go so that you can get it or let it recur in your dreams or your visions like Proust did. You mentioned earlier this thing about completed tasks. There's a wonderful psychological trope, a thing called the Zygernick effect. A fellow had noticed in the, in the restaurants that the waiters could remember exactly what the bill was until he paid the bill, and then they would forget about the bill. And so he thought that must be a psychological truth, that when you finish something, it, it drops away. And the unfinished task is what stays in the mind. You know, we have political unfinished tasks, which continue to haunt us. But both personally, individual psychology and politically, what one needs to do is get the truth as fully as possible. And that would be the precondition of letting it go. In your book, Plato seems to lay down the law that writing impedes memory. What does that mean? (laughs) In the oral tradition, you had to put things in your own mind to remember them. You had to make them alive in your mind. Whereas when you write them down with a pencil on a piece of paper, Hmm. it's out of the mind, it's dead on the page, and you no longer need the living human memory, so it'll begin to atrophy. So he says writing kills memory. I got to thinking about the opposite of that, which is the following. In oral societies... The law and cases that come before the law only goes back as far as human memory. Hmm. So there's a thing called living memory. And if you had a court case about some land dispute, you would get all the old people in town together and you'd say, well, what do you remember about this land dispute? And they would come up with, oh, we remember that Joe owned it and he sold it and so forth. Now, around the 12th century, people begin to write down land records And so you don't need to get all the old people in town to come. You can go to the library or the state archives and look it up. Now, the fact is that relying on living memory is a wonderful thing because past disputes just drop out. And the liveliness of the community Mm. is embodied in the people who live in the community, not in the records of the archive. So Plato says writing destroys memory. I say writing destroys forgetfulness. That wonderful line... Is attributed to Gorvidal, the United States of amnesia. Do we know how we got that way? Well, you know, it may be Emerson's fault. I mean, Emerson <laughs> urges us to forget uh, Europe, but the virus may have spread, and we begin to forget everything. This is a country of self-made persons. We're constantly remaking ourselves, and history is bunk, right? Who said that? Henry Ford or something. Yeah, Will Rogers, maybe. <laughs> so maybe we have to blame Emerson. But And it is the style of American thought to not dwell on the past. And that's what Gore Vidal means when, you know, Vidal was much interested in the past, wrote novels about past persons and presidents. And he's trying to point out, as Frederick Douglass did, that Americans need to remember to know who they are. I adjust this a little bit and say, actually, America is the United States of agnosia. This is a word that means not knowing, as opposed to amnesia, which means not remembering. Hmm. Because, in fact, it isn't that we knew our history and forgot it. It's that we don't even know our history. Diagnose that fundamental thrust of make America great again. Go back to something. What does remembered glory have to do with who we are, where we're going? 
So when you say make America great again, it's the again that's the catch there, because it does look to the past, not to the future. You could talk about what America will become. Here we're talking about an imagined America of the past. There's a wonderful book by a woman named Svetlana Boyum called The Future of Nostalgia. Mm. She says that there's two kinds of nostalgia. Nostalgia is looking back at the past with a sense of painful longing in it. One is restorative nostalgia, in which you really try to make the present look like the past. You scrub the monuments, you make everything clean again. If in the past there were no people of this particular ethnic group, you get rid of them. The other is, her other category of nostalgia accepts that the past is lost. It looks at it with some longing, but knows that it can never be recovered and is willing to move on to the future. You know, Vladimir Nabokov is an example of a writer who has this wistful kind of nostalgia. He knows what he lost in Russia, but he has no interest in going back. In fact, in his wonderful book, Speak Memory, he says, it would be a dead life if you lived in the same house all your life and things never changed. The world is about change. So to make America great again has in it the hook of trying to recreate in the present a past that existed. And it always comes with a kind of cruelty, because you need to obliterate what doesn't fit in the present moment that was never present in the past. Lewis Hyde, it's a joy to read your work and a tremendous privilege to sit here talking about it. Thank you for both. A primer for forgetting, getting past the past. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. There's an extra on the way for open-source patrons, a visit to a forgotten memorial around Boston with Lewis Hyde and our producer, Adam Coleman. Visit us at patreon.com slash opensource and sign up to be one of our open-sourcers. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath never forgets. And I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source.